0: The Fiction of Kay Gibbons, next on Soundings. This is Wayne Pond at the National Humanities Center. Join me now for readings and a conversation featuring novelist Kay Gibbons. She's here with another installment in a continuing series of programs highlighting the work of contemporary Southern writers.
1: There's a charm for an easy life that I got out of the a manual, a folklore manual published around the turn of the century. But I have no way of acquiring all of those things. And I'm looking for a charm and maybe when I have written about 40 or 50 more books that I'll understand what it is. I wish I knew.
0: Novelist Kay Gibbons. She'll be back in just a moment with readings and a conversation about two of her books, Ellen Foster and Charms for the Easy Life. This program is part eight of New Southerners, a continuing series highlighting the work of contemporary Southern writers. Major funding for New Southerners comes from the Lila Wallace Reader's Digest Fund. Soundings is a cultural affairs service of the National Humanities Center. When novelist Kay Gibbons published her first book back in 1987, she says she was terrified of being found out as a literary pretender. But those fears have proved to be groundless. Having written three more widely praised books, Kay Gibbons has established herself as an original voice. In the words of one literary historian, Kay Gibbons is part of a second Southern Renaissance, a generation of writers with special insight into how the old South became the new and how the contemporary South fits into mass culture in the United States. Kay Gibbons grew up in eastern North Carolina, where the pine forests of the Piedmont blend into the Sandhills. It's a region where likewise geography and history have blended with the writer's imagination. Gibbons's first book, Ellen Foster, tells the story of a country youngster whose life turns tragic. Her second and third books, A Virtuous Woman and A Cure for Dreams, have received critical and popular praise in the United States and overseas. In her most recent novel, Charms for the Easy Life, Kay Gibbons presents three generations of Carolina women, beginning with Charlie Kate, she who receives the easy life charm of the book's title, and continuing with her daughter and granddaughter, Sophia and Margaret. In a way, Charms for the Easy Life extends the characterization Gibbons began with her first book, when she created a young woman who's strong-minded, opinionated, and determined to make her way in the world. In a moment, Kay Gibbons will talk about Charlie Kate and read from Charms for the Easy Life. Before that, we begin with a reading from Kay Gibbons' first novel, Ellen Foster.
1: Starletta, I always thought I was special because I was white. And when I thought about you being colored, I said to myself, it sure is a shame Starletta's colored. I sure would hate to be that way. White people selling your mama's quilts like they do. And the three of you live in that house that's about to fall down. I always went away from your house wondering how you stood to live in a house without an inside toilet. I know your daddy just put one in, but you went a long time without one, longer than any white folks I know. And when I thought about you, I always felt glad for myself. And now I don't know why I really don't. And I just wanted to tell you that you don't have to say anything back. You just lay there and wait for supper. And I will lay here too and wait for supper beside a girl that every rule in the book says I should not have in my house, much less laid still and sleeping beside me. But while I watch her asleep now, I remember that they changed the rule. So it does not make any sense for me to feel like I'm breaking the law. Nobody but a handful of folks I know pays attention to rules about how you treat somebody anyway. But as I lay in that bed and watch my Starletta fall asleep, I figure that if they could fight a war over how I'm supposed to think about her, then I'm obligated to do it. It seems like the decent thing to do. I came a long way to get here, but when you think about it real hard, you will see that old Starletta came even farther and I'll watch her resting now because soon we'll all be eating supper and maybe some cake tonight. And I say, Lo, Starletta, you sure have a right to rest. And all this time, I thought I had the hardest row to hoe. That will always amaze me.
0: Tell me about the voice of little Ellen Foster. Uh, that book goes back to 1987. Oh, I could accuse you of uh, imitating Mark Twain and creating a little 11 year old mm-hmm. female Huck Finn, or she calls herself Old Ellen all the time. That sounds like Holden Caulfield. Who were your models? How did you invent that voice?
1: Can I make a confession here? Sure. Mm-hmm. I think I may have read about three pages of Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> I was supposed to read it in high school for a test, and I may have read the Cliff Notes, or I think I read enough to make up, the, you know, talking about the Mississippi River as life. That's what I wrote about. Uh-huh. I still have that paper, and I, may, I probably read the first few pages.
0: So in other words, it's impertinent of, uh, impertinent of me to accuse you of modeling Little Ellen's voice on the voice of Huckleberry Finn.
1: Oh, no. It happens all the time. And with A Virtuous Woman, I got letters from people accusing me of having modeled it after As I Lay Dying. And I got so tired of it that I went and read it, and I saw how (laughs) that could be true. But as for Holden Caulfield, he's one of my heroes, and I've read that book maybe five or six times.
0: Uh-huh. We'll come back mm-hmm. to Ellen for a moment. How, mm-hmm. and tell me about how you put that voice together and that, that little 11-year-old mind speaking to us about mm-hmm. these awful experiences that this child has gone through.
1: I listened. In that book, I listened and I wrote. And when I feel very creative, which I did for a six-week period during that time, which is something bordering on mania, um, I listened to the voice and I wrote it down. And if I wrote and then tried to listen to it, it was wrong. Uh-huh. And that only happens maybe in a writer's life once every 80 years.
0: So that was a lucky moment for you. That was. Uh, were, were you teaching yourself to be a writer as you composed uh, Ellen Foster, as you listened to that little voice?
1: Oh, no. I didn't know what was going to happen to it, but I did know that if I didn't publish it and if it did not do well, I wasn't going to write because... I needed to make a living doing it.
0: Uh-huh. Kay, tell me about Starletta, who is one of the characters in in Ellen Foster. Uh, what I'm leading you to here is the question of race, the way you uh, view it, appreciate it, mm-hmm. criticize it, come to it as a writer of fiction.
1: I've never believed that in the South or anywhere else that racial tolerance or racial acceptance can be mandated by a court. I think that it starts at the kitchen table Whether you hear your father say nigger, colored person, Negro, black, Afro-American, I think you get that value there. Uh And I refuse to believe that it comes from any other place. I don't think it can come from reading Martin Luther King's speeches. Perhaps it can come from watching tapes of Martin Luther King's Washington address. That never fails to move me how long can that last? So I think it starts at home. So with Ellen, I wanted to make it start at home and I wanted to show her growth to racial acceptance via another person, via the black person. She
0: talks about uh, what it's like to eat uh, a colored biscuit. Uh, She's a little worried about that. She's worried about the air, breathing the air inside a the, the home of black people and so you build into her enough what uh, of a mixed set of feelings here that right. she is not a little preacher she's not preaching to us about racial toleration
1: um, I'm, I've about had all I can take and listen to all I can listen to about um, political correctness in literature <laughs> my, my goal is not to preach I have no didactic agenda I'm Dominic Dunn recently said that he wrote entertainments and I had rather it be said of me on my tombstone she wrote entertainments than she was so politically correct she couldn't have a good time in a party.
0: When you put your books together, uh, Kay mm-hmm. Gibbons, what what is it that drives you? You say that you sit and uh, if you're having trouble, mm-hmm. you draw on your own experience and then let your imagination take over. Is it, mm-hmm. is it character? Is that what dominates? Is it event? Uh, for example, we're going to move from place mm-hmm. A to place B. Tell me about the mixture between the people that you write mm-hmm. about and the things that happen to them.
1: It depends on which draft I'm writing. In a book, I have 79 pages for, because I count the pages every day when they come out of the printer. Um, <laughs> um, I guess I'm page-driven right now. Um, it starts with character and voice, and I meet one character, the main character, the, the teller of the story. It's the first-person story again. Uh-huh. And then when I go through it that second time, I meet and develop another character. So I can go through, I went through Charms of the Easy Life four times. One time for Margaret, one time for her mother, one time for minor characters. And then in that last draft that was written under the gun when the books were about to be in the stores, I developed the grandmother who took took over the story. And Alan gergainis advised me when i was having trouble he said with each rewrite give a character another attribute so you don't get bored and i took his advice and i did that and in the last draft of charms for the easy life i decided they all should be avid readers so i made a list of books i wanted them to read and and the, and i stuck that in josephine Humphrey's in a fireman's fair and it stuck the um, Hurricane Hugo in on her last rewrite and that's the thematic locomotive in that book.
0: That's the event (laughs) that drives it.
1: And if you're decent, it doesn't look stuck in. (laughs) (laughs) That's the trick.
0: You're listening to Soundings from the National Humanities Center. I'm Wayne Pond with Part 8 of New Southerners, a continuing series of programs highlighting the work of contemporary Southern writers. My guest is Kay Gibbons. Her most recent book is Charms for the Easy Life. It's the story of three generations of Carolina women, Charlie Kate, Sophia, and Margaret, grandmother, mother, and daughter. In the following excerpt, Kay Gibbons suggests the combination of folk wisdom, social standards, and personal strength characteristic of Charlie Kate, a woman of willfulness and determination.
1: There existed no similar tracks for young girls, but my grandmother broadcast information anyway. On the girl's birthday card, she would write the time and date she would arrive in person and tell them literally what was what. She took each of them a package marked Moontime Things, and inside were little muslin sacks marked Fox Unicorn for cramps, Evening Primrose Oil for moodiness, Whorehound for bloating. She explained girls' bodies to, to them, corrected ruinous impressions created by the Baptist and always ended her discussions with the same message I was to hear more times than a few. Kiss all you want to, kissing's fine, nothing more than uptown shopping on downtown business, but if you suffer him to put that ugly thing in you before you married, do not come to ask me how to undo what you have so stupidly done. The characters in a charm charms of the easy life are actually they don't actually come from people I knew they're actually they all come from me. Um, the book was due, and I had to cough up some personalities so and I was told this I didn't discover this myself, but it is true that Charlie Kate is the part of my personality that does have an answer for everything in. The facet of my life that is like Charlie Kate's, that is, that is manipulative and domineering. I am learning that I cannot do that with my three daughters. They are four, six, and eight, and I'm learning that I have so little control over what they are ultimately when they grow up. I was under the impression that I could mold them into what I wanted them to be.
0: And is that why you made Charlie Kate as strong as she is? Because she is a molder. She is a shaper. She is a
1: molder. I think maybe I was getting my frustration out that I can't stop my daughter from reading babysitter book clubs with a flashlight (laughs) when I want her to be reading White Fang.
0: Do you feel, Kay Gibbons, that you have a particular kind of uh, responsibility or burden as a Southern writer, the way you talk to, shall we call it, the rest of the country about what goes on in the South, what your expectations are, what really is out here in front of us, in your experience?
1: Um, I, no, I take my cue for that from Quentin Compson in Absalom, Absalom when Shreve asked him, what is it about the South? Explain the South to me. And Quentin responds that, I can't explain it. You would have to live there. So I'm not about to take on that burden. It's all I can do to just tell a good story. It's hard to explain the South. If I'm going to be an ambassador, I think I should get some sort of formal appointment.
0: Well, should the books speak for themselves, therefore? Uh, should, Should we take the books on their own terms and divorce them completely from your views and your experience?
1: Yes, I prefer to do that. And I get letters from college students and when I speak at colleges and when I'm interviewed by college newspapers, they do not distinguish between the teller of the stories, the narrator, and me the writer and they get into all sorts of trouble and one boy in I think it was Seattle hated me before he met me because he thought I hated men and oh he had all sorts of attitudes about my lack of political correctness in the books and that I was saying colored when I should be saying afro-american and I had to explain to him that in 1934 Um, A 65-year-old woman would not have said Afro-American. It had nothing to do with what I would say now. In the
0: the same way that Mark Twain used particular kinds of language in his books.
1: Or W.J. Cash, this this revisionist theory that we want to go back and and paddle everybody, paddle my mother for saying colored, and I, I have no patience with it. And I ask him what he was taught in school, if this were not taught anymore. When when I was in college we were taught about narration with the Canterbury Tales. Right. And he had not heard of the Canterbury Tales. And I thought, Aha gotcha I <laughs> said, so that's disturbing to see that. And it happens all the time. And the younger the person talking to me, the more pronounced it is. I had much rather be thought An historian than um, someone who was out to prove something about the South.
0: Well, now, you you told me earlier, though, that you think of your Mm -hmm. books as uh, you would prefer that they be thought of as entertainments. That is to say, Mm -hmm. uh, they occupy a reader uh, productively, pleasantly for a a certain span of time. Is there a contradiction there between those two?
1: Oh, no. I think that... um, I would like to think that a hundred years from now someone could open up a book and see that in the 1920s a woman may not have said menopause. She might have said when nature left me. <laughs> I would like for them to pull out language. And language to me is entertaining. Language is the most entertaining um, thing. Um, in this universe, it, it is it.
0: The way people mm-hmm. talk to one another. That's, right. what, that's what essentially inspires your imagination.
1: Yes, and I, and I have tried it to instill in my children an appreciation for language and a love of it. And I try to do it. That's my home training. I had much rather that my daughter say something like, I would like a poodle, a cat, and things of that nature than <laughs> she have excellent table manners. The language pleases me.
0: You're listening to Soundings from the National Humanities Center. I'm Wayne Pond with Part 8 of New Southerners, a continuing series of programs highlighting the work of contemporary Southern writers. Here again is Kate Gibbons with another excerpt from her most recent book, Charms for the Easy Life. In this recollection, the novel's narrator, Margaret, revisits her grandmother Charlie Kate's early days of married life in turn of the century Eastern North Carolina. Margaret tells how Charlie Kate received the folk charm of the book's title.
1: On the way to wake county something happened they stopped and cut a man down from lynching this poor man was alive but barely and after my grandmother rubbed voice back into his throat with her bare hands he sat up and regarded the botched execution with great contempt he rode with my grandparents the rest of the way to wake county sitting beside my mother in the buggy telling her hoarsely again and again they will come and look at that tree and have to wonder I bet they'll bet Jesus took me down. They won't come looking for me now, not with the power of God in me. He thanked my grandparents with a railroad watch, a tin of excellent snuff, and an easy life charm he pulled off a greasy thin chain around his ankle. The charm, he said, was the hind foot of a white graveyard rabbit caught at midnight under the full moon by a cross-eyed negro woman who had been married seven times. He then walked around this part of the state for the rest of his life with a thick scar around his throat, singing my grandmother's praises. He talked his salvation into legend.
0: Kay, tell me what you're working on these days.
1: What I'm working on has no title. I'm not exactly sure what it's about other than it's it's about a woman who escapes an abusive marriage. But she's not a victim. She doesn't consider herself a victim. And maybe that's a response to watching too much Oprah Winfrey (laughs) on the road. I didn't want her to engage in self-pity. I wanted her to triumph over this just not endure. W-
0: would you say that these are universal situations that you're drawing on or again do they do they have particular southern spins to the to the kind of situations and characters that you create?
1: Her situation of escaping the marriage will, will be universal. She comes from an old southern family, a good family in which things like this if they did occur were certainly never talked about. Uh-huh. And part of her goal in her life is to hide it from her family.
0: Is that emblematic of not just your fiction, but Southern fiction generally? Talking about things that haven't been talked about, putting them on the table, and we sort of, uh, we go through a, a kind of therapy with the writer?
1: Yes, and we can see that most um, pointedly in Pat Conroy's Prince of Tides, that being a major theme of the, the book. That we, what we do not talk about, and the mother's insistence that we do not talk about that. And the only way he can survive is to talk about it. Uh-huh. So I write about the South because I feel a certain authority with that. I, n- I know who we are. And I, although I have been to other landscapes, I don't know those. And I write about history because I, for some periods, I do feel some authority, and my goal is to write a big Civil War book, and I I refuse to take it on until I have read everything I can get my hands on, and I'm daunted because I know there's a lot out there. It it,
0: it is more than an industry, the Mm -hmm. uh, uh, ongoing publication of material Mm -hmm. about the Civil War. Kay Gibbons, what do you want for the South? Uh, Do you you dream, fantasize, think about things like this uh, when you consider your relationship to your readers and uh, your relationship to a tradition Mm -hmm. of Southern writing?
1: When I think about that, I think about it in terms of writing about the South, and I want us to keep the language alive. And in the book I'm working on now, I... It's set in 1987, 88, and in order to keep language and the family rootedness alive, I had to give her a family with an old grandfather and a maid. I had to work at it because I, I find that I can't write about the South without some history. It's very difficult because if I did not do that, it would sound like a book set in Peoria uh-huh. or San Francisco. And that's not what I want.
0: Do you think you'll ever write a book that is not particularly southern in its flavor and its tone and the experience that it
1: draws on? If I am like Elizabeth Spencer and live in Canada or somewhere for a long enough time to feel part of that landscape, maybe so. But I I just have no business doing that. And there's enough right here to write about. Mm -hmm. I think it would be silly and it would be as silly as me writing a book about nuclear submarines. <laughs> it, it would be that odd, and I'm I'm not about to do it. Um, Alan Gergenus has lived in other places enough to write about them with authority. I lived in Marin County, San Francisco, for 40 days and 40 nights. And that and was enough, huh? It was enough. I could write about a woman who moves there, and moves back, but I can't write from their point of view and and it's not as if I, I don't know their prejudices or their quirks. I do not know their, their, the landscape of that mind.
0: Kay Gibbons, I want to thank you so much for coming by the National Humanity Center to participate in our series on Southern Writers. Let me mention uh, at least a couple of your books that I have here in front of me. Ellen Foster, that's Algonquin books. That goes back to 1987. And the most recent book, Charms for the Easy Life, that's available from uh, Putnam's. And you're still with Putnam's? You're working on this new book with them? Yes. Uh huh. Kay, thank you so much for coming by the Center. I wish you well in your work. Thank you. The program is Soundings, a magazine of ideas and insights from the National Humanities Center. I'm Wayne Pond. In just a moment, I'll tell you where to write if you'd like to have an audio cassette of this week's show. You've been listening to Part 8 of New Southerners, a continuing series of programs highlighting the work of contemporary Southern writers. My guest was novelist Kay Gibbons. Her books include Ellen Foster, A Virtuous Woman, and A Cure for Dreams. Her most recent novel is Charms for the Easy Life, published in paperback by Avon Books. Upcoming installments of New Southerners will present readings and conversation featuring Tina McElroy-Ansa, Robert Olin Butler, Randall Keenan, and Brent Wade. For an audio cassette of this program, send $10 to the National Humanities Center, Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. The zip code is 27709. Please ask for program number 716. That's program number 716, the National Humanities Center, Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. The zip code again is 27709. The music you heard on this program is from an album entitled The Devil's Dream and featured the Tarwater Band. Thanks for listening to Soundings. Major funding for this program came from the Lila Wallace Reader's Digest Fund. Soundings is a cultural affairs service of the National Humanities Center.